chapters 40 to uh, 55. And that of itself is actually extremely exciting. You may find it frustrating. It is frustrating sometimes not to be able to stop and savor some individual verses. But to get a big flavor of what he's, uh, what he's saying and where, where his prophecy is inevitably leading is very, very exciting. I hope you'll agree that with me as we turn to uh, uh, the scriptures now. Um, we have from the second half of chapter 44 of Isaiah to the end of chapter 48 to look at. Chapter 48, I'm going to read from verse 12 right to the end of the chapter to give you some idea of the, the denouement of our story this morning. Chapter 48, Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, Israel whom I have called. I am he, I am the first and I am the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I summoned them, they all stand up together. Come together, all of you, and listen. Which of the idols has foretold these things? The Lord's chosen ally will carry out his purpose against Babylon. His arm will be against the Babylonians. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I will bring him, and he will succeed in his mission. Come near me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. Now the Sovereign Lord has sent me with his Spirit. And this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands. Your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be cut off, nor destroyed from before me. Leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. I want to begin by telling you about a father who had a son. The father was rich. He wanted the best for his son, so uh, when the child was born, he appointed a nanny. She was good and kind, and she cared for the boy very well. When he was seven, the boy was sent to a board at a private prep school, one of the best in the country. And his holidays were either spent in the big house at home or on a yacht in the Mediterranean. Unfortunately, his father was seldom there. His father was a very busy man. At 18, partly due to his excellent education, this boy, now a young man, got a scholarship to his father's Oxbridge College and on his 21st birthday, he was awarded a first-class degree and his father broke his, from his busyness and came down for the ceremony, took his son out for a celebratory meal. 
His heart was full of pride. But in a moment of self-doubt, the older man leaned forward across the table in the restaurant and he said, I have done well for you, haven't I, son? The tears welled up and the young man replied, Yes, Dad, except one thing. I never had a father, only a provider. So we know that loving someone involves more than just organizing their life, than just supplying all of their needs, don't we? Yet, actually, the, the picture that Isaiah has been portraying of God so far in this series has looked rather ominously like that father in our story. Now, Isaiah 40 began with the, the tender words, comfort, comfort, my people. But since that time, actually, God has much, looked much more like a chess player moving the pieces around the board to achieve his purposes than a comforter who's really intent on restoring his relationship with his people, isn't he? Last week, even, when we looked at um, how God's people fail him, we could have got the impression that even God's, God's decision to forgive us was simply that just the, the judicial decision of a detached judge handing down his verdict. But actually, it was never so. Although God is absolutely determined to achieve his purposes for his world and his people, that's been absolutely clear through the previous few weeks, he also longs for a relationship with his people. He's not satisfied with the relationship that that rich man had with his son. No, he, he wants not only to supply our needs, but also, in fact, to have a reciprocal relationship with us. He wants us to, to delight in him. He wants us to, to joyfully accept his love. God's people are not pawns on his chessboard. They are his family. And this week in these chapters, we are going to see how uh, that begins to work itself out in, in increasing passion in God's heart as we go through the chapters of Isaiah, we'll see actually two themes developing in tension with one another. The first is an increasingly emphatic and even clearer reiteration of God's control over absolutely everything. But alongside that, God is going to show us again and again that he wants our willing cooperation with his plans. We're going to see him dealing with, uh, with objections that we might have. We're going to see him calling us in the, in the tenderest of terms. And, and then at the end of the passage, as his uh, final verdict is, is worked out, and we, saw, we read just a little bit of that at the beginning, we're actually going to find that that final verdict is, is filled with the tension that a father might feel for a wayward child. He must provide for this child. He cannot abandon this child. This child is his, and nothing in all eternity can stop his people being his. And yet he is deeply, deeply pained 
by the fact that his own people throw his blessings back in his face. That, that's how the, the story is going to develop. And uh, I hope you've all got a white insert in, uh, uh, in your um, magnets, your bulletins, which will tell, show you the structure. We're not going to be able to, to um, uh, draw a lot of attention to that structure. You'll just have to uh, uh, keep an eye on it as we go through so that we can follow the flow of thought. There are two announcements we're going to see, two objections, two calls, two verdicts. Firstly then, Isaiah sets the scene with two announcements in the second half of uh, chapter 44. One announcement is addressed to Israel, and one is addressed to the king of Persia, Cyrus. And both of them say, effectively, I'm in control. To Israel, he says, from verse 24 onwards, I will bring you home from the exile. This is what the Lord says, verse 24, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be built. And of their ruins, I will restore them. If you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll know they were in exile in Babylon, away from their own land, away from Jerusalem, from the towns of Judah. And uh, uh, God again and again has said through, uh, through Isaiah, I'm going to bring you home. Nothing is going to stop me from achieving that. That is my announcement to you. And then he uh, makes a, uh, a second announcement. And this time, though, it's to this man, Cyrus, who uh, we've uh, noticed there were allusions to before, but now he's named. It's to Cyrus... God says, I will use you. Chapter 45, verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and I will lever the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze, cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasure of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. Now, this passage is actually quite remarkable. It's remarkable, first of all, because it actually names Cyrus. Because Isaiah died long before Cyrus was born. In fact, uh, the nation of Persia, of which Cyrus ultimately became king, was far from being a superpower in Isaiah's day. And yet Isaiah is uh, predicting that this uh, little insignificant nation is going to overthrow Babylon, and he's even naming the man who will be king of that nation when it happens. If you were here a few weeks ago, you may remember that I said that many people, as a result of this particular part of the prophecy, think that uh, it must have been written much later, after Isaiah's death, after all, how could Isaiah possibly 
be predicting someone uh, so specifically in the future? How could he name him even? But actually, that theory rests almost entirely on the prior assumption that Isaiah couldn't have done that. In fact, as, the, uh, uh, as this prophecy goes on, we'll find Isaiah more and more clearly portraying Jesus in such dramatic terms that it's really quite unambiguous. But uh, this prophecy we know for an absolute fact was complete long before the time of Jesus. No, in fact, uh, if we uh, eliminate this prior assumption that Isaiah couldn't possibly have done that, we actually have no good reason to suspect that this was written by anyone but Isaiah, who more than a hundred years before had predicted that this man Cyrus would come and overthrow Babylon. And in fact... It's essential to the plot of what Isaiah is saying that he has predicted that. He is saying, I predict this long before so that when you see it happening, you will believe me, you will trust me. Second remarkable thing about this passage, though, is that Cyrus is called in verse, chapter 45, verse 1, the Lord's anointed. That was the title normally for the king of Israel. In fact, by Isaiah's day, it had uh, also become the, future, the, the focus of a great future hope that they had, a future kingly personage, a future anointed one who would vanquish all the powers of evil, who would rescue Israel. In fact, uh, the word uh, translated anointed one is the word Messiah the title ultimately that was given to Jesus. But here it is Cyrus, a pagan, who is their Messiah, their saviour king. Despite the fact that if you look at verse 4, uh, Cyrus never will fully acknowledge God as his God. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honour, though you do not acknowledge me, he says. In other words, God is quite prepared to use a pagan, even, if he needs to, to save his people. It's God setting out his authority then in the boldest of ways. He says, I am sovereign over all powers, whether they are good or evil. I am even prepared to use evil powers for my purposes, he says. We've seen that again and again. But uh, uh, so far in our series, we've never actually stopped to think carefully about why God bothers to tell us. Why doesn't he just do it? Why does he go through all this business of prophesying these people in the future and then having it come true? Well, the answer is very clear. He tells us because he wants us to rejoice in what he's doing. He wants us to respond to what he's doing. And now he starts to, to, to tease that out over these next few chapters. To say, I'm telling you about these things so that you will know me more and love me more. 
The first thing that he knows he needs to do in order to achieve that is he needs to deal with two objections that we might have. The first one uh, is uh, found in chapter 45, verse 9 and following. The objection that he's dealing with there is the objection, I don't like that. I don't like that. It's a very natural reaction, isn't it? Now, what is God doing using a pagan as his Messiah? Can't he raise up a good godly Israelite? When the Berlin Wall came down, everyone was celebrating. Wouldn't it have been great if it was Christians who had been at the forefront of the, of, of the action there? We could have felt so good, couldn't we? It was not Christians. Actually, the most powerful uh, uh, people who were uh, involved in uh, uh, breaking down of the uh, communist bloc were people who, in fact, got fed up with their poverty and wanted some of the wealth of the West. Or wouldn't it have been great if Hitler had actually been defeated, perhaps had actually been assassinated by those Christians who tried to do it? Wouldn't that have been great? Then we could have said, there you are, there's God working in history, using his people. That's not the case. Actually, God didn't even only use the so-called Christian countries. We conveniently forget that the Soviet Union, the communist Soviet Union, was very significant in winning the Second World War. Or think about Pol Pot. Pol Pot was driven out of power in Cambodia by communist Vietnamese after they'd finished dealing with the Americans. God works in this world by using anyone he pleases to achieve his purposes. And sometimes we just don't like it, do we? We don't like it. it. Makes the world far too messy, far too confusing, far too painful sometimes. Well, this is what God says to us, verse 9. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you forgotten, begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? Of course a pot doesn't have the right to the, or the ability even to question the potter. Of course a toddler can't understand all the reasons for their parents' actions. They just have to accept them. They just have to trust their parents. Well, says God, it's the same for you and me. This is the way I work in this world. Trust me. And he says, that trust is well placed. I have given you enough evidence that you can trust me that I'm working out my good purposes. Look at verse 12. It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. In other words, he's saying, don't question me. Trust me. I am working these things out. The second thing 
that we tend to say, though, after we've said, I don't like it, I don't like the messy way that you govern this world, Lord, is that we say, I don't see it. I think that's actually the best explanation for this uh, verse 15 in chapter 45. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God, and Saviour of Israel. I think we can read it as a sort of rather sceptical response now. Now this business of using Cyrus is pretty subtle, God was saying. Looks more to me like just the forces of Persia overrunning the forces of Babylon, isn't it? This business of it all being part of the divine plan is pretty difficult for, for me to spot, God. Again, we, we react like that, don't we? Especially when something painful hits us, something difficult hits us. You think, I just don't see it, God. Uh, we, we, we can't look back over the 20th century, for instance, and say it is obvious how God works his purposes out. We can't look back over our lives very often and say that we can see how God was working uh, his perfect purposes in everything that happened in our lives. Some things fall into place in the long run. Many things remain confusing. What's God's reply to that? People who say, I don't see you working out your purposes. Verse 18. This is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. And he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. He has spoken, he says. He's spoken in the public realm, not in, not in private. He's predicted Cyrus coming, and now it's happened. Doesn't that prove he's in control? Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to see Isaiah portray more and more clearly the ministry of Jesus, even, in this prophecy. At this point, it's not entirely clear, but when we get to Isaiah 53, we'll see him as clearly portrayed as he's ever portrayed in Scripture, eight centuries before he was born. Doesn't that prove that God's in control? He declared things beforehand, and then he achieved it? Can't we see that then? Can't we trust the things that are, for a while, confusing? and difficult for us to see. Now, although Jesus didn't predict the events of the 20th century, he said there would be wars and rumors of wars right up to the end, and there are. He said the gospel would be preached to every tribe and nation before the end, and this century has seen the gospel go throughout the world. He said that there would be an ever-increasing uh, tension and, and opposition against Christians. And as we saw last week, there have been more martyrs in the 20th century than all the 19th centuries put together. The details may not be clear, but we have plenty of evidence that what Jesus said, what the New Testament says, has been coming true. Don't you see it, he says? I want you to see it. Because I don't want just to be in control of this world. I want to be in control of this world for my children, 
Believe me. Trust me. This is not a distant managing director God here. This is the Father who longs for a relationship of love and trust. And then he moves on then from dealing with those two objections to issuing two calls. Which again reinforce this sense that that, that he longs for a real relationship with us. Chapter 45, verse uh, 20, he calls to the nations. Uh, Gather together, come assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who praise to gods that cannot be saved. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. Actually, there's a surprise in this. God's primary intention up to now had been to save Israel. Just occasionally his vision has gone beyond that. But now he's saying, all nations, come to me. He wants the nations to see that he is in control of everything so that they can come to him, so that they can trust him, so that they can abandon their idols that they trust in. Because, he says, one day absolutely everyone from every nation will have to give an account to him. Verse 23, by myself I have sworn my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. And on that great day, he says, when every knee bows to me, there will be a great and eternal divide. Verse 24, they will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All of them will say that. But he says, all who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exalt. It's interesting, actually, he uses the phrase descendants of Israel rather than Israel there. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament makes plain what Isaiah is alluding to here. The real inheritors of Israel's mantle are not the nation by genetics. They are all those from every nation who have faith, those who turn to God, those who come to him. It's easy to gain an impression that the, the, the Bible's a book only for Christians, but it's not. It constantly, constantly draw, wants to draw in those beyond the realm of faith at the moment. Because every knee will bow one day. Every one tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the difference is, some will confess that with shame and be condemned. Some will confess it with joy. And he says, I long for people from every nation to confess it with joy. Come to me, he says. If you, if you know you're not a Christian here this morning, then he is calling you. He is the only one who is in control. He has dealt with our objections. And he says, come to me. Why should you spend any more time trusting in anything else which really has no power? Come to me, he says. Put your trust in me. Can't you see it? 
Don't you see what he's doing? Come. But then he turns another surprise. First surprise was that he called all the nations when he's been focused mainly on Israel. But now he actually turns to Israel and calls his own people. Uh, 46, verses 3 and 4. Listen, O house of Jacob, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Verse 8. Remember this. Fix it in mind. Take it to your heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times what is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land a man will fulfill my purpose. That's Cyrus. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Listen to me. You stubborn-hearted, you who are far from righteous. I am bringing my righteousness near. It's not far away. My salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Listen to me, he says. Pretty sharp words, aren't they? He says, my own people are no more hearing this message than the nations in general. Remember, he says, the things of long ago. They suffered from collective amnesia, he says. Listen to me, you stumble, you stubborn-hearted, you who are far from righteous. They were as hard-hearted, he says, as anyone else. If you're a professing Christian here this morning, then he is talking about you and he's talking about me. We don't listen to God. We are stubborn. We are hard-hearted. We are unrighteous. We are no better than anyone else. He longs for us to want Him, to turn to Him. He longs for us to listen to Him. He longs for us to surrender our hard-hearted rebellion to who He is. He is not content just to be the controller in the skies. He wants to be a father whose child listens to Him, whose child remembers His love, whose child longs for Him. Listen to me, he says. And then from issuing these two calls, he moves on inexorably towards his final verdict. The first verdict is reasonably simple. It's the verdict on uh, Babylon in chapter 47. Let me read the first three verses to give you a flavor. Go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, daughter of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender or delicate. Take millstones and grind flour. Take off your veil, lift up your skirts, bare your legs, wade through the streams. Your nakedness will be exposed, your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. 
The whole chapter describes in excruciating detail the judgment and shame that will be brought on Babylon. Now she set herself up against God and she will bear the consequences. There is no hope, no reprieve, no second chance. Ironically, Babylon herself had been used as God's instrument in an earlier time to punish Israel. Look at verse 6. I was angry with my people, that's Israel, and, and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand, and you showed them no mercy. See, she didn't think of herself as an instrument of God's to discipline the people of God. No, in her pride, she thought she was the eternal one. She thought that God was just another little deity that she could crush with her great eternal power. You said, verse 7, I will continue forever, the eternal queen, but you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. Verse 11, disaster will come upon you and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you and you cannot ward it off with a ransom. A catastrophe you cannot see will suddenly come upon you. Every power that rises to strength goes through this same cycle. It starts to think that its own strength has achieved this. It starts to think that it's the eternal one. It starts to think that it will go on forever and then... God passes a verdict on it, and it disappears forever. That's God's verdict on Babylon, the forces against him. But then in chapter 48, there is the verdict on the people of God, which is far more complex, as I said at the beginning. God is determined to save his people, but he is actually under no illusions at all of what they are like. Listen to this, verse, chapter 48, verse 1. Listen to this, O house of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah, you who take the oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. In other words, he's saying... saying uh, uh, you don't deserve to be called Israel. You invoke the name of the Lord, but you have no right to. I prophesied about the events that are about to happen, you, uh, happen to you. You stubbornly refuse to believe that I am working, he says, unless I talk to you in words of one syllable. Verse 3, I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I know how stubborn you are. The sinews of your neck were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you. So that you could not say, my idols did them. My wooden image and metal God ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them. Will you not admit them? In fact, I'm, he says, I'm going to tell you about something I'm going to do even beyond liberating you from Babylon. I'm going to tell you about, uh, uh, about it now, he says, so that you will never say that it was your idea. 
verse 6, From now on I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. They are created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today. So you cannot say, yes, I knew of them. You have neither heard nor understood. From of old your ear has not been opened. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. What's this new thing that he's going to do? I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to come back in the next few weeks. Isaiah is alluding to something he's going to show us in the next few chapters. What he's telling us now, though, that we need to take to heart is that he's told us it beforehand. Surely, then, he says, we need to turn to him. How stupid we are, he says. Like Israel of old, when wonderful new things happen, we think, I did it. I achieved that. Oh yes, that's all due to that principle that I understood years ago and I've applied it. Look at these wonderful things that we've achieved. And he says, not on your nelly. The new things that I bring about are because I decided to do that. Yeah, you know, Christians today are just as idolatrous. Let me, let me ask you to complete this sentence in your mind. This church is growing because see whatever was uh, flitted into your mind first there, not, not the uh, orthodox bit that you shoved in afterwards. Whatever flitted into your mind first was what is in danger of becoming a god in this church. No, he says. I am going to do a new thing. I am going to save you. I am going to do great things. But there is a pain deep in my heart, he says, because you do not listen to me, because you are still rebels, because you are still stiff-necked, as he put it, sinews as hard as iron. Get through into your brain. There is bronze on the outside, and I cannot penetrate it. This is my verdict on you. Why actually does he then stick, uh, uh, stick with us? Why doesn't he just lump us together with the Babylonians? Why doesn't he just give one verdict for everyone uh, like he did in chapter 47? Well, he says in verses 9 and 11 here, For my own name's sake I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Somehow God's determination to save his people is bound up in who he is. For him it is not a simple equation because he has bound his reputation with his people. And if he, if he destroys them, then he himself will be defamed. And he will not allow that. So there is a deep agony in God's heart. He cannot save his people because of their sin, but he cannot reject his people because they are his people. And he has bound himself eternally with them. 
Their reputation is his reputation. And from the depths of that anguish that has been building up, as you've seen over these chapters, from the depths of that anguish, he he calls to us. Verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, Israel whom I have called. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. With my own hand I laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summoned them, they all stand up together. Come together, all of you, and listen. Which of the idols has foretold these things? The Lord's chosen ally will carry out his purpose against Babylon. His arm will be against the Babylonians. In other words, I'm going to do what I said I'd do with Cyrus. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I will bring him and he will succeed in his mission. Come near and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the times it happens, I am there, he says. But even as he, as he, as he cries with that, that anguish, he knows that his call is in vain. Isn't that painful? Verse 17. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be cut off nor destroyed from before me. They will not listen, he says. But he will not be stopped either. Now he is determined that somehow he is going to save his people. Verse 20, leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, announce this with shouts of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the ends of the earth. The Lord has redeemed his servant Israel. But that hope is still, at this point, tinged with this deep, deep problem. The chapter ends on a very ominous note, verse 22. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And that is the God that Isaiah is wanting to portray to us. You see? A God who longs for his people to listen to him. A God who longs for his people to respond to him. A God who will control history. But he wants his people to be partners in that. To love him. So how are you going to respond this morning? That's the, that's uh, the question isn't it? And it may be that you don't profess to be a Christian at all this morning. Well, let me ask you, what evidence do you have that God is not in control? The Bible itself says it's a confusing place sometimes, but there has been enough set down in Scripture about the future that has come true to assure us that he is in control. Will you, will you come? Will you accept him? 
The main message this morning, though, is uh, to Christians, to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. To us, he says, listen to me. Don't be just satisfied that I'm controlling things in the background. I want a relationship with you. I want you to come to me. I want you to rejoice in me. I will save my people, but I want you to be saved willingly. I want you to delight in me. Is that what your heart yearns for more than anything else? To know that God, to love that God, to listen to that God? Because his heart yearns for that. He is a father, not an absentee father, not just a provider. He is a father who longs for relationship. A father who says to every one of his people, I will save you. Listen to me. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, it almost feels like you have um, bombarded us with so much this morning. Such a uh, uh, an extraordinary uh, collection of, of great statements about your control and enormous pathos and desire for you, for us to come close to you. And each one of us here confesses, Lord, we've not fully understood that. But Lord, leave leave us with a sense, we pray, of that great desire that you have for us to know you. Please, Lord, call us into that relationship. Help us to listen to you, to respond to you, to be saved. If this morning, Lord, it's the first time 